Good morning, Reliance. Um, if you allow me, Marissa, um, I know that uh, ministering during COVID was challenging. Um, thankful for your faithfulness, and I pray that uh, you would be encouraged as the days go forth. You are doing a ministry that finds its very heart, what Christ ha- has done for us. And I pray that uh, you'd be encouraged in these days and that you would get 50 people today um, to serve with you. Well, that's a goal. I'm optimistic. But uh, if you have, like, this, these are opportunities within our own city. Christ loves the nations. And uh, he's loved Gentiles. And that is who we are. He could have been just faithful to the Jew. And we have come to realize in the book of Romans that God has been gracious to us. Romans eleven twenty two. Behold then, the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, Gentiles, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. It's those type of words, when you read them, you've got to be careful. Uh, we're not selective readers. When we come to cross God's word, there are times in which they're pointed towards the believer. There is a, uh, a form of evangelism. And when I say evangelism, I think most naturally... People think of evangelism in the form of invitation. And I say it in the, in the sense of like when evangelism, when John the Baptist came along and he began to preach in Matthew 3, 2. Repent. For the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus himself practiced this evangelism of invitation. The time is fulfilled, Mark 1, 15. And the kingdom of God is at hand. And he said, repent and believe in the gospel. We're familiar with this type of evangelism as a form of invitation. Peter as well practiced this at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. After giving a sermon and the audience being pierced to the heart, Peter said, now when they heard this in Acts chapter 2, verse 37... When they heard this message, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And the evangelism took the form of invitation. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, and even Paul as he said in Acts chapter 13, evangelized in the form of invitation, they said, and Paul said in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I think we're familiar with this form of evangelism. But there are parts within scripture where evangelism is pointed, not to the one who's on the outside, but rather to the one on the inside. And it comes with a sharp warning. It's evangelism with a warning for those who have come to faith. Hebrews 3.12 Take care, brethren, that that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. 
And this comes with a sh- sharp warning. Matthew 24, 3 of 13, as Jesus told the disciples, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Romans 2, we saw this, this sharp warning for the insider, reminding ourselves that the letter of Romans is written to the church. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, God will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. And here today, we see this sharp warning again. An evangelism which is coming to the believer or to the house of God, to the people of God, with the warning. Behold the kindness of God, the severity of God, to those who fell, severity. But to you Gentiles, warning. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue... In his kindness. Otherwise. Otherwise. You also will be cut off. Not reading selectively. These words are serious. And I find it interesting. We have labored for now. Two chapters. And it's now. On the heels of Paul's teaching. In chapters 9 and 10. Paul has proclaimed. The sovereignty of God. In salvation. And he has shown that God's sovereignty extends even now into salvation. The means by which anyone believes is the result of God's call. Yet it's on the heels of this proclamation that now Paul stresses human responsibility. Remember, the kindness of God, walk in it otherwise, you will be cut off. It's an evangelism of warning for those who have come to know Christ. And I find it interesting, I find it ironic that on the heels of it, he now challenges human responsibility. Continue. Yes, we have come to realize this. One, yes, as we remind ourselves, this whole section has started as a result of being reminded of God's call which produces salvation. So yes, God's salvation solely depends, as we have learned, first, upon the call of God. Romans 8.28. We've come to realize this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called, called according to his purposes. So yes, the sovereignty of God exists even in salvation and to those who are called, those are his. And yes, we have come to realize even in this section, the call of God is specific. He chooses to whom he is merciful. As we read in Romans 9, 11, and 13, he uses the illustration of Jacob and Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and not, had not done anything good or bad on the basis of works, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The sovereignty of God in the previous section stressed, it is God who calls. Yes, we saw that it was specific, and we realized this. Yes, God, through this salvation, while he is merciful to some, he hardens. And we saw this in Pharaoh, Romans nine seventeen through 18. For the scriptures say of Pharaoh, for, there, for this very purpose I raised you up. 
to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. I'm going somewhere. Just stick with me. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So one, yes, we learn that God's salvation solely depends upon the call of God. We learn that God's call is specific. We learn that God hardens the heart for. We learn that God is currently calling Gentiles to himself. Praise God. Romans 9.25, he is willing, as Hosea says, I will call those who were not my people, my people. Her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God, Gentiles. And so we have learned much so far. And as Paul has gone on to labor as he works his way to chapter 11, he, he reminded us in, in Romans 11 that yes, God at this moment, yes, the Jewish nation, there is only a remnant who has responded Yes, God at this moment is only saving a remnant of Israel. Romans 11.5 The people that had the greatest zeal for God, the oracles of God, the traditions of God, saw the power of God. Only a remnant are being saved in the same way. Romans 11.5 then. There also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice that are responding. Six, yes, why is it only a remnant that are being saved? God has hardened the rest of Israel. This is sharp. But on the heels of it, it comes a warning to those who have responded to the gospel. The reason why, still to this day, many Jews have not responded to the gospel, according to Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, appointed by Christ, Writes in Romans eleven seven through 10. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who have chosen, obtained it. Because there's a remnant to have responded to the gospel. But that remnant was specifically by the gracious choice of God. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Glad that Paul doesn't end his letter here. Why is it that so many have not responded to the gospel within the Jewish nation? Because as Paul teaches, God has hardened their hearts. But the remnant that has responded is a result of God's gracious choice. That they have come to realize the grace that is extended in Christ. Seven. No, God has not written Israel off entirely. As we find out in our reading today, Romans 11 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as far to, so as to fall, did they? May it never be. They're not outside the reach of God's grace. It's this hardening that God has extended to Jewish people that we'll come to realize here in a moment has been temporary. God's doing something in which we find and realize 
you know, if you remember with me, it was in the days of Pharaoh, when Pharaoh's heart was hardened by the sovereign power of God, we learn that God hardened Pharaoh's heart with the sole purpose of using him as an object to demonstrate his power so that the world might know who Yahweh is. As Exodus 9.16 declares. And yet now in the same way, God, through his people, Israel, has hardened their hearts for a specific task. And Gentiles, or the remnant of Israel, he's done it for your benefit, as Paul teaches. Romans 11.11 I say then, they did not stumble as so as fall so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But their transgression, by their, excuse me, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgressions is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Why is it that According to Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, appointed by Christ himself, who writes the words of God to the church. Why does he say these things? I think he's trying to get Gentiles to remember who they are. I pray that you would consider these words. I mean, theology, I don't think Paul is writing these words to show off his theological scholarship. He is brilliant. But he is writing to a Gentile audience who is at the edge, like every generation, to look at the unredeemed and mock those who have not responded to the gospel. So what's the point of all this section? It's pointed to you and I, who happen to be, I imagine most of us, Gentiles. If you are a Jew who have responded to the gospel and you find yourself within the remnant, praise God that God has been gracious to you. But essentially, Israel has now become Pharaoh. And because Pharaoh's heart was hardened, according to Paul, their transgression, the riches have been now extended to the world to respond to the gospel. And so what's the point? To whom does Paul, the question I have for us this morning, to whom does Paul say, continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off also? Look with me. He's concerned about something. And if we're, if we're faithful to the text, I think there is something extremely convicting about this that Paul is revealing to the church to remember and consider. To whom... Does Paul say these words? He reminds the Gentile of this in verse 16. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now, so what is Paul doing here? Let's define some terms here. The the natural branches would have been the Jewish community in which God historically has established them and made them who they are. 
It was God who pulled out Abraham from where he lived and made promises to him and that he promised that he would make a nation that would be a bless the entire world. And he grew them up even under the oppression of Pharaoh and made them powerful or in the sense of numbers. Pharaoh, seeing their numbers, desired to eliminate them, yet was unable, even in all his might. And in that oppression, God preserved them, bringing them out of Egypt. Historically, God's hand has been with this people, the Jewish community. They were the people of God. They were the natural branch. They had the oracles of God. They had the traditions of God. They knew God. Otherwise, however, the Gentiles, they're not that natural branch. What are they? Wild. They're the wild olive, which has now been grafted in among them. Gentiles, remember who you are. Wild, grafted. I mean, if you can see the imagery he is trying to work with, you just don't fit in. That's the point. You don't know who God is, nor are you familiar with the oracles of God. You actually have no traditions with God, but God has been gracious to you by hardening the hearts of the Gentiles, and you have been grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So what's the point? To whom is Paul writing these things? He has this aim. I believe all the way since the beginning of chapter 9 finds its resting point in verse 18. Do not be arrogant. How is it that a Gentile finds himself among the natural branches? Or another way to say it, how is it that a Gentile finds himself among the people of God? As we've done our homework well and we've labored through this and we've understood and been convicted by God's word, we've come to realize that it is only by the grace of God do you find yourself among the people of God. For it's not about whose family you're from, Romans chapter 9. It doesn't matter what works you have done, Romans chapter 9. It is only and simply by the call of God, wild branches. How do you find yourself among the natural branches? By the grace of God. So don't be arrogant. It's natural, I think. I think it's natural. Once you find yourself in the club, to find yourself looking to those outside the club arrogantly. We do this on JV or varsity soccer teams. Not football, I suppose. But we tend to look down upon those who didn't make the team. Paul reminds them. Don't be arrogant. You didn't get in this club or this group, the church, the people of God, simply because of your morality. I mean, could you hear it? It's probably littered in the church. And Paul, throughout the other epistles, is so familiar with this the Jews. They have the oracles of God. Yeah, they're zealous for God, but they miss Jesus. How is it? How stupid can you be? I mean, have they not read Isaiah 53? Psalms 2? Do you know they know their own scriptures? You can imagine how the Gentiles could use the scriptures that they knew very well against them. And in through this criticism, become incredibly arrogant. Paul says, do not be arrogant. 
Be careful. Wild olive branches. You know why you're in the family of God? Because of the grace of God. 18. Do not be arrogant. Remember who you are. But if you are arrogant, because we're prone to this, he's starting to get, I think, a little applicational. He's like, if you've been to the groups that I have been, I remember my times at Moody. Like when we talked about the doctrines of predestination or the sovereignty of God, often I found myself not wanting to participate in those conversations because those who believed in predestination were arrogant and quite combative. And in my own experience, seeing churches split over the issue, like Paul goes through the sovereignty of God and he lands with the, the mindset, don't be arrogant with this knowledge or information, this mystery. Remember. Remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You have inherited an incredible grace of God in which God has historically worked within the people of Israel. The promises made to Abraham now have become your blessing. Christianity finds its roots in the people of Israel. It's not your time, nor is it your place, now to look upon the majority who have been hardened by the hand of God with arrogance. I mean, Paul doesn't go there. See, remember who you are. You're the wild olive branch. You worship false gods. You could care less. You want to go back to Romans chapter 1? You're the people who loved creating all sorts of new evils without concern. You're the guest, so to speak, just because now there's more of you. That's the point. Don't be arrogant. But in verse 19, you will say, then, branches were broken off so that I might be put in. Nice. Yeah. You know why God's not saving the Jews? So that he can pick me. You just see the arrogance boiling over. He wanted me and his family. The others, he cut off so that I have to find room. How is it? How is it? What's wrong with humanity that when it experiences the grace of God, that it can use the grace of God as opportunity to look down upon another? I think this is probably really practical. Because he's getting at the heart of why Christians understand the sovereignty of God. Why is it that Jews are not responding to the gospel in the majority? Because God has hardened their hearts. It's not because of something you've done. Rather, if you remember with me, I'm jumping off and getting a little away from my notes, but Paul realizes the hardened hearts of the Jews, and what does he do? Not arrogance. He weeps. Romans 9.1 Telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies within me. In the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow. Unceasing grief. In my heart. I wish. I myself were a curse. Separated from Christ. For the sake of my brethren. My kinsmen. According to the flesh. It doesn't sound like arrogance to me. He pities. Not pities. He has compassion. He recognizes that Jews and Gentiles are saved by grace. 
And he doesn't see that grace as an opportunity to boast for oneself, but the grace of which God has extended to them and to us. Romans 10, 1, Brother, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Don't be arrogant. Wild olive branches. Remember who you are. You're a nobody. Maybe that's going too far, but... But if it came to religious conviction, zeal for God, knowing the words of God, having a history with God, yeah, none of that. If God was using that as the basis to be among the people of God, you're out. And in fact, being grafted in, you're wild. You say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, verse 20. They were broken off, not for your replacement, so that you could be placed in, but for their unbelief. But you stand by faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. Why is it that you, who were counted among the people, so many not left within the natural tree, the people of God? Because then they saw Christ. When they saw him sacrificed and atoned for their sins, when they heard Peter preached the gospel to them, whether it be Paul or the beloved around them, when they heard the gospel, they rejected their Messiah. And the result of their unbelief was the result of their being cut off. So don't be deceited, the conceited, but rather be reverent. Here is where Paul gets specific, and we're going to find our response, I think. Why does Paul labor for these last several chapters to come to this point? For God did not spare the natural branches, and indeed, in verse 21, God historically has invested significant amount of time in this Jewish community. He raised them up, he built them up, he protected them. Sennacherib had the city of Jerusalem surrounded by 200,000. The mighty power of God delivered them in that day. They, didn't, they do not, they did not, they do not exist today because of their might, but by the gracious hand of God. He has invested himself in the natural branch. Prone for a Jew, I imagine. We're good. We're in. You see the Messiah and reject him. Stand in unbelief. And God did not spare him. Just because they're natural doesn't mean you're in. You ought to respond by faith. Which we've come to realize already in Romans. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will. Here's the challenge for you and I. If he didn't spare the people that he invested in historically, the people of God, he will not spare you either. In comparison, they're the natural branch. If you're going to give any time as a farmer, you're going to give more time to the natural branch. Because when you put a wild branch into a tree, it's easy to cut out that. Because the natural is better than the wild. Who are you, Gentile? You're in the people of God because of God's grace. And you stand in faith. And you know that wild branches are saved by faith. Because if it was dependent upon the historical work within the Gentiles, you're done. If it depended upon your knowledge of the God's word, you're done because you don't have it. If it depended upon anything that you could possibly do, you're not in the people of God. But you stand in faith. God has been gracious, as Paul has said, 
That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called. If he didn't spare the natural branches because of unbelief. He will not spare you either. If you respond in disbelief. So then. Verse 22. Now he's, he's landing us to this conviction. Behold then. Behold then the kindness This is what Christians ought to do, whether Jew or Gentile, but he's being pointed to the Gentile, the the wild branch. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. As you look at their unbelief, recognize the severity of God. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, You will also be cut off. In the people of God, there is no place for arrogance. If you've been called by Christ, you've been called by God, if God's been gracious to you, don't use that seed of grace as opportunity to look down upon another in arrogance. That's the point of the whole section. You don't get to look down to any people group. And think somehow you got in because of your morality or your wisdom or your intellect or your favor in regards to a human effort. You simply are in the people of God because of the grace of God, the call of God, which you have responded to in faith. Don't take that seat of grace as an opportunity to become arrogant. Why? Verse 23. And they, Jews also, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Could you imagine the awkwardness? As you say cruel things, <laughs> haven't they read Isaiah 53? Those is, they, they know the oracle of God, they know the tradition, Passover lamb, lamb blood on the doors, Blood on a cross. Like, don't, why can't they get it? And you speak arrogantly. That when they do respond into faith, the awkwardness is they come into the body of Christ. In which you would have to apologize for the arrogance in which you once displayed towards them. And if they also, if they do not continue in their faith, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them again. For if you are cut off for what is by natural wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? It's easy to graft back the natural if they respond by faith. But it is miraculous, you olive branches, you wild olive branches that you're in. Because that's a lot harder. Don't take the seed of grace as opportunity to be arrogant. That's why Paul has labored for two and a half chapters on the sovereignty of God in salvation. So that you might recognize the grace of God to be the seat of your humility and response of worship to you, to whom has been gracious towards you. That's the point. Which leads me then to this, to ask the question, What is one's convictional response 
towards such a passage in 2021? I think we could be honest. I don't know if our society, maybe in parts of our society, I'm sure there might be some. We don't struggle with arrogance between Jews and Gentiles. Right? We don't take the seed of arrogance and we don't look down. I've given some examples of where we might do that. But I do think we are definitely prone towards arrogance to use the grace of God as opportunity to look to the outside world forgetting that we're only in the family of God by the grace of God, forgetting those things and looking to the outside world with arrogance. So we struggle, I think, the way we talk about Mormons or the way that we talk about Muslims and the tone that we talk in it might be true. Right? They need Christ. They need to see that he's the one that provides atonement for sin. But yet sometimes the tone and the way that which we address these true things are arrogant and demeaning. Even the atheists, how often we find ourselves wanting to mock and see the atheists fail and appear stupid. It's possible that God could save an atheist and bring him into the body of the church. But how awkward would it be for a body of believers who once criticized and humiliated a man, rightfully, in the sense of truth, but used that truth as, as demeaning for that one relationship to be now family? agnostics, or the way that people don't even care about religion, the way that we talk about them. Which reminds me, and I think the whole point of this is, is like remembering, how did you even get in? How was it that you became a part of the family of God? It was by the grace of God. And we do not use the, gra- the seed of grace as opportunity for arrogance, but... T- to be reminded of the humility that, that we were not even in. We were the Gentile, the one without even the scriptures, the one without even the promises, but yet then still God was gracious to us by means of hardening a particular group. And no one, I mean, no one's excluded from this. The remnant of Israel is saved by the gracious call of God. How is a Mormon saved? How is a Muslim saved? How is an atheist saved? How is an agnostic saved? How is a child who's been raised in a Christian family saved? By the grace of God and the call of God. And the response is not to be arrogant but to be humble and grateful. And I think mimic Paul. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother, my kinsman according to the flesh, Romans 10.9, or 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire, my desire, my prayer to God, to God, because it's only by God, through Christ, And by his call that they can be saved to God for them is for their salvation. 
The seed of grace is not opportunity for arrogance, but for compassion. And we have no idea, no idea who could possibly be counted among us tomorrow. And that will change the way that you talk about not just religious convictions around the world that are outside of Christ. It'll change the way that you talk about a homosexual. It'll change the way that you talk about abortion. Which we recognize God's word is clear and true. And I, and I often fail at this too, within the convictions of the passion, trying to find the light, right line and tone, and I'll be, I'll, I'll be clear. And I think I, I've been wrong at times. This is a weird thing. Like some of you come up here and you're scared half to death. Some of us stand behind it and we become arrogant. And wondering and recognizing that there's a responsibility when we talk about true things to communicate them in a way that are humble and gracious and inviting. God's way for marriage is the greatest way to have life and which demonstrates the glory of God. Whether it be abortion, transgender, homosexuality. I mean, have we not forgotten have we forgotten 1 Corinthians? Let me go there again. Like 6? Chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor infeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covenants, nor the drunkards. Addicts, like we're a, we're a messed up family, as Paul's going to go on to say. No revilers, nor swindlers, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. You get it? Gentiles, wild olive branches, we're all sorts of different messed up people who rebel against the God, but God's been gracious to you. At the right time, He spoke his truth to you in such a gracious and profound way. You responded to the kindness of God in Christ. So don't use the seed of grace as opportunity for arrogance, but use the seed of grace for humility and compassion towards those around who have yet to respond. Because next day, or maybe even tomorrow, they'll respond and they'll be counted among us. Praise God that would be the case. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Why is the sovereignty of God in salvation so important to realize and know? Because you're in the people of God by the grace of God in which you stand by faith. So behold the kindness of God and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity, here's the warning. An evangelism of warning to the beloved, but to you. God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, otherwise. If you think you're all that in a bag of chips, and you've brought something that the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't brought, and you trust in your own works, or respond in disbelief, otherwise, you also will be cut off. Heed the warning reliance. And as you go out into the world, recognize you go into a world that does not believe. 
And we know the only means by which they can believe is if God opens their hearts. So do not use the seed of grace as opportunity to be arrogant, but to respond humbly and graciously and compassionately to the world which God has sent you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that you demonstrated your own love towards us while we were yet sinners. And we are prone to take the seed of grace as opportunity to look down upon others who have not received it. We become wise in our own eyes. Professing to be wise, we have become a fool. Forgetting that it's you who has saved us, who has been gracious to us. Lord, I don't know where we're at, where we go to work, what peoples we have a problem with. We look at with arrogance. And we demean them with our, maybe not even with our words, but with our hearts, our minds. Lord, I pray that you would do something miraculous. You would humble us and you would demonstrate your grace towards them and open their eyes to Christ, giving these people the opportunity to demonstrate the compassion and grace that they have received in Christ to them. And that they would be faithful to open their mouths and proclaim the faith that we have in Christ. I pray that you would give those those opportunity to people that we would say are far off, for we are that people, and experience that grace in which we are so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.